Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 369, 69, recorded uh, January 29th, 2024, and I am Brian Aachen. Hey, I'm Michael Kennedy. <laughs> and this episode is sponsored by us. Um, so check out our courses at Talk Python Training and the Complete PyTest course. And thanks to Patreon supporters and really everybody that just like spreads the love and shares our, our podcast with other people. Thanks so much. The first item is going to be Granian. Oh, neat. Yes. Before we get into that, I just want to sort of set the stage. Is, you know, when you're running Python apps, web apps in production, there's usually something that talks to the web browsers. And then there's the part that runs your Python code, right? The part that talks to your web browser is Nginx, Apache, Caddy, one of these things that does SSL. It has no knowledge of Python. But then behind that step, we've got MicroWSGI. And we've got G-Unicorn and those types of things, right? So that's where your Python code runs. Usually it run, it'll creep multiple of them. And both those two that I named, I'm big fans of. MicroWSGI is awesome, super fast, low memory usage, but only does WSGI, does no async stuff. And that's a huge drawback, right? It doesn't do async. It doesn't allow you to like properly scale async and await. G-Unicorn, on the other hand, allows you to use UVicorn workers inside there, which is kind of like one more chain in that loop. But it, when you deploy it that way, you can do async and await, which is awesome. But there's this new-ish thing coming along called Granian from the Emmet framework, which is a, a new Python web framework. But this is a Rust-based HTTP server for Python applications. So a Rust version of MicroWSGI or GUnicorn. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's kind of cool. It has 1.5 thousand stars on GitHub. Been coming along for a while. Been, um, it's created by a guy named Giovanni, I believe. And Giovanni says, well, why well, I'd build this thing? A couple of reasons. It's a correct HTTP implementation supporting version 1, 2, and working on HTTP 3, which is awesome. It avoids the G-Unicorn, UV-Unicorn, HTTP tools tendency composition when deploying in production. So this natively supports async and await, like right in it, along with WSGI. So how, whatever kind of app you've created, you can just run it right there in this thing without like chaining stuff together. And one of the things that's nice about it is it's not a ton faster, but it's way more stable. There's less jitter in its performance profile, which I think is super cool. I'll talk okay. about that in a second. But yeah, it has HTTP 1 and 2. Excellent. Supports HTTPS and WebSockets directly. I'm not going to send HTTPS traffic to it. I'm just using, for now, Nginx or whatever. But also supports RSGI, which is a Rust server gateway interface, I guess. You know, like ASGI and WSGI. So it does all the Python things, plus it has a Rust direct version, if that was the way you went down it. And it's, it's super easy to run. But from the performance perspective, if you look, it'll compare it down here to, um, let's see against UVicorn and Hypercorn is another one I should have uh, mentioned. That's like a parallel to uh, UVicorn plus Unicorn, but that one I think handles it all directly from Philip Jones, which is great. But if you look at, so let's just say like the ASGI get, it says it'll do numbers, please, 1.3 million requests uh, at, okay, that's just total, it doesn't mean anything. That could be over three weeks. 85, 86,000 requests per second. Or maybe this this one's a little bit better. Um, a different get for ninety four thousand. Compare that against 
the UV Acorn one, which is 19,000 versus 94,000, or the Hypercorn at 12,000 versus 94,000, which is great. But if you look at the variation, like response time on, let's say, UV Acorn is on average 8.7 milliseconds. That's really good. But yeah. the max is 320 milliseconds. Whereas if you look at this one, um, it's 2.7, but the max is only 8.6, right? So that that variability or jitter, or I don't know however, however the heck you say it, is way more stable. And you just kind of look across the board, like another example is 6 versus 70 and so on. So I thought that was pretty cool. So I switched. If you come over here, Brian, to Python Bytes, this is running on Granian right now over on my Docker cluster for the moment. So I just thought I'd see how it goes, and it's been going perfectly from what I can tell. So... So it's pretty yeah. easy to switch then? Yeah. I mean, all you got to do is pip install Granian and then change the start command, no matter how you run it. If you're running it in the systemd on like a VM, you change the systemd exec command. If you do it in Docker, you just change the entry point command hmm. from microwizgy this or gunicorn that to, it's basically just another startup command. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, one thing I did want to add for people who are considering this I got to move this over. Oh, one thing it doesn't, you can set it up so it'll do logging, but it doesn't do like easy logging out of the box. So I actually was messing around like, maybe I should just do my own logging. If for, for not for hey, my app started up, hey, somebody click this button, but just request response logging, which is pretty common. So I actually ended up playing with it and using LogGuru to come up with a color-coded um, added some middleware that came up with color-coded request response logging that does all sorts of cool stuff like see how some of the sizes in this log are red and some are white. If it's yeah. like over 500K in the request size, then it colors it red. Or if the response time is too slow, it'll tell it, color it like yellow. Or if it gets really slow, it'll color it red. Or it's a 400 or 500 code error, it'll color the, that part of the request red. Or, you know, so you can like look right at just right away and see. So... I've decided doing your own log guru request response stuff is pretty excellent, actually. So that's a, a kind of a cool consequence of playing around with this as well. Cool. So is the like the um, your use of log guru that a custom thing where you you look at the response times and color it differently or something? Or? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Like it'd be easy enough to just go print this format. The code is this. The URL is that. But I said it would be a lot more useful if it was color coded and meant stuff, right? Like if it's a yeah. 404. It should be a different color than if it's a 200 or if it's a redirect, it should be a different color. If it's, it's really, really slow, if it's, you see these times like 10 milliseconds, nine milliseconds, eight milliseconds, 12 milliseconds, if that was a second, maybe that's a problem. Color that a different color. And yeah. I did that by installing middleware in the, this is in pyramid, but it could also be whatever, right? You do some fast API or whatever. It just says, begin the request, do something, pass it down to the framework and then end the request and just times it and logs it and colors it there okay neat yep indeed indeed <clears throat> well i uh, i also want to talk about something new and old at the same time so nice um pytest is been around for a while but pytest 8 is brand new so pytest 8 just came out this weekend i'm super excited to start running with it actually i've already started running with it um i um we're gonna uh, put in the show notes i put Put a highlighted blog post of just pytest data here and links to the the change the full change log. Uh, but uh, the, what what they did was they spread out. If people are running seven like old seven x uh, pytest, which I, that's what I was using before, um, 
the changelog is a little, a little, just takes a little bit to parse because they spread it along uh, the RC1, RC2, and the final 80 release. Uh, the changes are all there. So I pulled the highlights out. So the, the thing I'm really excited, there's two things I'm really excited about. One is um, when you had an exception, there would just be a red block of, uh, of exception stuff. And they've, there's a whole bunch of cool difference, differences. So um, there's improved diffs when, when you fail an exception, um, especially if you do dash VV, so very verbose or verbose, verbose, however you uh, want to think about that. But you get a colored diff instead of the big chunk of red. There's That's also awesome. there's also back to this color thing, right? Yeah, it's also more more colors. Um, normal like syntax highlighting. We're used to syntax highlighted code, so there's um, error reports are now syntax highlighted, um, and there's uh, the section the different sections of the error report are s- separated better. Um, and then also uh, there's better support for standard library containers um, for diffing. Like there was usually there was a pretty good. Um, uh, tuple diff, for instance, but if you got if you had big lists, it was a little bit hard to read. It's a little bit better now. And then uh, more comprehensive assert rewrites for other comparisons, not just equal, but things like not equal, less than equal, uh, other comparisons. So that's really cool. Um, help help people debug their code. That, that's super nice because you want to be able to just say, are these two things the same and not write code around? How do you do that, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, and also like uh, comparisons like less than or less than or equal, it's really nice for the PyTest to go out and really tell you why that check failed um, mm-hmm. and highlight the part of your data that where it failed. So really, really fun to see that. Um, there's the thing, that, the next thing I wanted to talk about for PyTest 8 was uh, probably pretty obscure for people that are not using uh, xfail. So xfail is a way to say, um, I expect this test to fail. And for a lot of people, why would you expect it to fail? Uh, for But for large organizations, it's pretty common to file a defect and you don't have control over it. So you can't just go fix it. Somebody else is responsible for fixing it. So mar- that's how we use it. We And I mark, a, mark a, a test as failing, as expected to fail and give it a defect number. And then, uh, and then when, uh, when it, and that's not new. Um, but if it if it passes, there's there's decisions on how to make it X pass or what to deal with do with if an X failed passes. Um, I've talked about that much a bunch on the other podcast. However, um, the change for PyTest eight is uh, that with X fails, the traceback never showed up. It didn't used to. So the change is now if you there's a way to turn that on with a with the dash R command, you can turn on uh, X fail tracebacks. So that's really nice for uh, CI test runs to be able to see what the failure was in CI and not have to try to rerun it again. So really cool. Uh, excited about that. There's lots more things. So check out the uh, change log. Um, the reason why they bumped to eight, I think, is because there was a bunch of uh, they changed the way collection works and um, and that change that behavior change of backwards compatibility made it so that it made sense to bump the 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 number i think that's the reason i'm not sure um but also it's good to bump the number every once in a while so that we have uh that so that you can deal with uh, deprecations you can get rid of the code that you were meaning to get rid of uh so i i encourage people to run pytest 8 and check it out and turn on um you know turn on uh, the full strict mode and everything so that you know if uh 
if anything breaks, you can roll back if you need to. So awesome. This is like Christmas for you, right? Like a yeah. Major, yeah. <laughs> a major version release. Um, yeah. And it also made me, when I was looking at this, made me realize that I think I need to add more color to my blog. It's just black and white and uh, it's not very fun. So I'm, I have to add more color. Um, yeah, color's anyway. always fun. I mean, that's the theme of this episode. Last week it was, let's just ship announced open source projects we're releasing. This is like color episode. Color, the color episode. Yeah. <laughs> or as right. midnight the audience puts it out there, the readability episode. <laughs> very good. Indeed. Well, uh, let's hearken back to a couple of things on my side here. So I talked about this Docker work that I've been doing. That also kind of led me to the Granian stuff and playing with that as well. I also forgot to give a quick shout out to the people like both Andy Shapiro and Bill Crook pointed out, they said, hey, you should check out Granian. So I want to give them credit for sending that in. Thank you. But as I was doing all these Docker things, I was... You know, you know when you're in an unusual or an unfamiliar, uncomfortable space compared to what you normally do. Like right now, my little browser in this episode has maybe nine tabs, and that's like kind of a lot. But when I was doing the Docker stuff, I'd have like 30, 40, 50 tabs, and then I would close 30 of them because I'd solve some problem. Then it'd work its way. It was just tabs everywhere. So it was just like exploring stuff all over the place, right? I'm like, wow, I must not know what I'm doing right now. And it was true. <laughs> But, you know, that's how you get to where you know what's going on. Along that, I'd be like, oh, people talk about, oh, my gosh, totally giving up on doing this. I'm using Orbstack or Podman or if they support this OS. I'm like, what are these things? So I just want to go through a host of Docker goodies that I think people will enjoy. Not exactly Python specific, but certainly relevant if you're doing Python in any form of containers, right? So the first one of three, there's actually more, Brian. I'm not going to cover them all here. I'm saving some for later because it's just, it'll be a little out of control at that point. So OrbStack, if you use Docker and you use Docker on Mac or Windows, typically what you do is you get Docker desktop, right? So, so that gives you the Docker commands that allows you to run Docker locally. I think it might use, maybe it uses VirtualBox or something on Mac and it uses probably Windows subsystem for Linux on Windows. But you can run like Linux VM, uh, Linux containers on top of some hidden thing of Linux, right? Yeah. So OrbStack is kind of that. And they say, say goodbye to slow and clunky containers and VMs. It's a light and easy way to run Docker containers and Linux on your machine, right? So well, basically gives you a nice UI around it. It is 100% compatible with Docker. So you could say Docker run, Docker exec, Docker compose up, or whatever it is you say. And instead of using the Docker engine, it'll use this orb stack engine, which is pretty neat. It also has its own CLI um, if you want to directly work with it. But basically, it's kind of a one open source and two more lightweight. They've got a bunch of cool commands, but they show down here somewhere um, speed. If you're going to open, it says open edX. I guess that's probably the, the Docker compose setup for edX. Um, I'm to provision a development environment for it. It's pretty long still, because I guess that's a beast of an app. 17 minutes on OrbStack, but 45 minutes on Docker desktop to build PostHog, whatever that is. It's like a quarter or a third of the time. It uses, if you're on a laptop, it uses like less than 25% of the battery as well, or it depends uh, if you're using Supabase or Kubernetes or whatever, right? But pretty cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. And oh, oh another thing, I think, I think, let me look. Yes, this is a big deal. You and I were just talking about this before we press record. It says you can run Linux machines without a fuss. So one of the things I can do is I can go to like Parallels and I can run Linux, Ubuntu or whatever, on my Mac, my M2 
Mini, my M2 Pro Mini, however those words go together, <laughs> whatever order makes the right sense there. I can run them, but I can only run the ARM 64 versions because I only have an ARM 64 processor. But this one allows you to run Intel machines on Apple Silicon with Rosetta, which allows you then to run Intel-based Docker images and basically be closer to what your production environment is if you're using Apple Silicon. So that's also a nice feature of this. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it does cost money if you're a company, but it has a free version if you're just a person. So yeah, not an endorsement, but I thought people might find this to be pretty useful. It looks pretty cool. Yeah. Next one, Podman. Podman is the best free and open source container tools. So you can manage Docker containers, pods, and that term I believe comes from Kubernetes, like the unit of execution in Kubernetes is called a pod, and images with Podman. So yeah, it lets you seamlessly work with containers and Kubernetes from your local environment. So this is also really cool. A lot of people are doing interesting stuff. GitHub Action plugins. It's got a Visual Studio Code plugin and, and different things. And then the third one, actually third 3.5, because it kind of is uh, two, is this is pretty interesting. So one of the things that kind of is inspiring once you get all this Docker stuff going is like, okay, well, if, if that open source, big, complicated thing and some technology I don't know how to run, like PHP or whatever, but if it has a Docker container or a Docker composed set of containers, I can run it. All I got to do is just tell Docker to update it when there's a new one and just run it. That's super easy to do, right? So there's this, like taking that to kind of the extreme is there's this thing called Casa OS. Have you heard of this? No. I neither, but it has 20,000 GitHub stars, which is pretty cool. It, they call it your personal cloud operating system, community-based open source software focused on delivering simple personal cloud experience around the Docker ecosystem. So basically, if there's a thing that runs Docker, this is like a, an OS for running and a, a platform for running all that. So it gives you a UI and, and into this, this OS that they give you. And it says, look, you can collect all your precious data. It'll like tie together Google Drive, Dropbox, iCloud, OneDrive, et cetera, et cetera, hard drives and everything into just one drive view. <laughs> And then you can just access it and like map that drive over to your TV or your computer or, or whatever. Um, you can go, <laughs> there's somewhere in here where they've got uh, all these apps that you can go just grab and install or support. A lot of them are unfamiliar to me because I haven't done this enough, but like Couch Potato, Duck DNS, Photo Prism, and they just plug into this, this thing. So this is pretty interesting, right? I think. Yeah, you think, right? Yeah. Um, I don't so, know what I would do with it, but you know. Yeah, so one of the things that I think this is sort of coming out of is they have this thing called Zimacube, which instead of running all your stuff on the internet, this is like a kind of like a really fancy NAS okay. network attached storage, but it also runs Docker and all these things. So it says you can have up to 164 terabytes of SSD, but then it also runs all of these things. And this is on um, Kickstarter, and it was already funded at around 1.1 million US, which is a lot apparently so this is kind of the the intended destination for that but i think you can run it anywhere so pretty cool right yeah i mean some people think over a million dollars is a lot i don't you know it's chump change but you know yeah <laughs> yeah so i don't think this thing is shipped yet i think it's in in development still now that their kickstarter ended but yeah so there's a whole bunch of different fun things so orb orb stack podman casa and Zemacube. Okay, so I I have a question about the Orb stack. Um, is the that doesn't generate Docker images though, does it? I mean, I have to have Orb stack stuff on the server as well, right? 
No, it it will manage. It is a transparent um, API or CLI to the Docker CLI. Oh, okay. So, so if you just install this, then you can go to your command line and type Docker build whatever, and it'll download and do all the things. But then when you ship ship it to production, you could have real Docker there. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah, I didn't understand. It's more that. like it's more. I think it's mostly around kind of yeah. It's mostly around the desktop side of things. Right. So it's like a simpler, lighter way to do desktop stuff. Possibly you could run it on your own. It, like I said, it does have its own CLI for doing its things its way, but I think people will just use it as a, a Docker desktop alternative. Yeah, and it looks like it's um the 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 business and commercial use pricing is slightly cheaper than Docker desktop right now. So there's benefit there. That's as right. Well. I, I didn't remember that Docker had gone commercial on that side as well. So yeah, that makes them more comparable, right? As opposed to, yeah, there's this other free thing. It's not terrible though. I mean, like I just, I, we just had to re-up our Docker uh, at work and it's what we, I think I paid 300 bucks for five seats per year. That's not so. bad. Yeah, that's not bad. Not when it's not your money, it's fine. It's not my money. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier to spend not your money. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I love not your money spending. But anyway, uh, pretty cool. Uh, um, I'll look forward to checking that out. I actually think it'd be fun to have one of those Zima cubes. I do too. I, I really consider it. Wouldn't it be awesome to just have all those cool apps running plus, you know, 100 terabytes of storage? Yeah. So it's like the cloud, but it's at home. So it's just exactly. a top then. <laughs> it's more like fog it's way lower down it's it doesn't fog. it's fog it's personal personal cloud is fog personal <laughs> fog that's nice okay cool um okay so that's uh that's some good news uh and i the next up i don't know if this is good news or bad news it depends on your perspective so i'd like to talk about um uh github copilot and other uh assisted ai stuff so um, Visual Studio Magazine uh, came out with this uh, article called New GitHub Copilot Research Finds Downward Pressure on Code Quality. So the, the question really was kind of if I've got if I'm using co coding with Copilot, if I'm if I'm using um, using Copilot to help me write some stuff, is the Copilot kind of like having a, uh, you know, junior developer um, that is is it more intern or is it more senior dev? Yeah, is it more intern or more senior dev? And um, so the the they they the result was or oh, their question was is it more senior dev or more akin to a just the just jointed work of a short term contractor? Which I thought that was appropriate because um, a contractor might be very skilled, but they don't really care about they might not care about maintenance too much and just yeah, exactly. getting it done. So yeah, the technical debt is not a problem when you're done next week. Yeah. And you don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the best ways to not deal with legacy code is shift switch jobs. Um, anyway, um, we the answer is summarized uh, of this white paper is um, is summarized by uh, we find it discon we find disconcerting trends for maintainability code churn, which is the percentage of lines that are reverted or updated less than two weeks after being authored is projected to double in 2024 as compared to 2021 pre-AI baseline. We further find that the percentage of added code or and copy-pasted code is increasing in proportion to updated, deleted, and moved. 
uh, code. In this regard, AI-generated code resembles an iterant contributor prone to violating the dryness, um, the don't repeat yourself, of the repositories visited. So this isn't that surprising to me, but it's interesting that there was a study done by GitClear. And uh, also interesting that it was you know printed in Visual Studio Magazine, but mm-hmm. I don't know if this is... If the uh, I guess the magazine probably doesn't have any ties to Microsoft, but um, or GitHub. But anyway, interesting. Indeed. So Bart out in the audience has a different analogy. I'd I like to adapt. It's not junior senior. It's a parrot that recycles what it found on the web. So I'm thinking more Stack Overflow copy and paste action type of stuff here. <laughs> and Grant says, I read this too. The research makes sense. Sounds right, but uh, Copilot has benefits to senior devs, like applying good patterns faster. Yeah, which is pretty interesting. I mean, there there was some comment in the article that uh, essentially stuff still got done faster. It's or at least got to uh, something working faster. Um, it's just that people often go back and you know, back later and and modify and refactor the code, and that's not necessarily bad. But you know, yeah, get the sense that. Copilot is very focused on what prompt did you give me? I'm going to do that rather than I understand what your entire project is. I've seen all 200 files. I've thought that through. Now, in that context, the answer to your question is X rather than Y, right? And I don't think it does that. I think, I mean, I, I don't, it would be a yeah. very high level of like token usage <laughs> that it would have to take into account. I just don't, I think it probably just goes like, all right, well, you asked me a sentence. Here's the answer, Python. Yeah. I actually want to play with it more. I haven't really played with Copilot too much. It's not something I can use at work, but on personal projects, I think it'd be fun to use it more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, um, the, I, th- we're still, I mean, it seems like, you know, it seems like, uh, like ChatGPT is kind of old now and Copilot is like really old, but really the, we're re- really just starting to use these tools in development. Mm-hmm. Like they said, pre 2021. So it's still only a couple of years that we have have under our belt um, working with these things. And I think that um, I think that the tools can get better. And I, I, I'm looking forward to being able to, I, I both worry about the, the developers that are going to lose jobs and stuff because of this. But um, I also, I think that the tools will probably get better. Like you said, if it can look at your entire project and say, Hey, um, uh, in this context, this is the right call. You're you're repeating something. You we can uh-huh. we already you already implemented that. Let's go, you call this function instead. Um, that would be great. And also, if if we could have AI tools to to help uh, maybe keep a style similar or the just a general philosophy similar in, around a project, um, I think there's room for that uh, w- once it gets there. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen. Yeah. All right. Extra extra time. Extra, extra. Oh, um, yeah. So my extras are um, like, did you know that PyTest 8 is out? <laughs> pip install dash u. Pip install dash u. But I also, if um, if uh, PyTest is uh, is one of those things that you've always been thinking about doing, uh, head on over to uh, courses.pythontest.com um, and you can learn it really fast uh, using a course. Or you can grab the book, uh, of course. So yeah, excellent. Uh, yeah, that's very exciting. Do you have any extras? I do have a couple things I want to quick give a shout out to. One, this has been around for plenty long, although it's changed behind the scenes, not in a way anyone would really necessarily notice, but it has. And that's just, I want to encourage people to join our newsletter. If you go to Python by FM, right below the hero image, there's a thing that says newsletter. If you go newsletter, you go over there. It says become a friend of the show. Put your information in there. 
This is actually um, revamped as part of my work that I did with ListMonk, the private self-hosted email stuff moving away from MailChimp and others. We talked about that last week, two weeks ago, some some number of weeks ago. And that means it doesn't go anywhere. We don't share it with anyone, but Brian and I are planning some fun stuff and trying to do more with newsletters and reaching out and connecting with you all. So we would love for you to go to pythonvice.fm, click on newsletter and put your information in there. We won't share it, but we'll try to make, make it worth your while. But we also haven't emailed a lot on it yet in the past. No. So uh, when we start using it, don't think that we like bought your your name off some list. It's uh, that we're just starting to use it more. So. Yes, absolutely. It drives me crazy when people mark, they'll come sign up for your newsletter and then they'll mark it as spam, which means other people have a harder time getting it. It's like you, you typed in your information into there and then you mark just, it doesn't unsubscribe. Just please use the unsubscribe. Just use the unsubscribe. Yeah, yeah. I actually wrote a ton of software. I have a whole separate Docker thing running that like monitors for people marking stuff as spam because there's ways that you can receive hooks about that information and automatically unsubscribe people if they do that, even if they don't unsubscribe. But, you know, it's kind of a sense that damage is still done a little bit. Email is a complete nightmare. All right, let's get away from email because it makes me upset. All right, so <laughs> Pydantic. Pydantic's awesome. Sydney Runkle, who works uh, the Pydantic company, um, was on TalkPython recently, released a brand new version version 2.6.0. And Samuel Colvin said this is probably the biggest, most important important release since 2.0. All If you scroll through the release notes for Pydantic 2.6, there is a, a lot going on here. And even just the new contributors is, is massive. But apparently a ton of speed up, some other things going on here that you can check out. So if you're using Pydantic, everything's excellent. Just no more Python 3.7 because we've already had the um, the thanks and goodbye to Python 3.7. We're on to 3.8 as the minimum reasonable Python these days. Cool though, huh? Yeah, very cool. A lot of contributors. Yeah. There's a lot going on here. It's a, it's a popular library. Like if we go over here and we see like, okay, well, how many things depend on it? Whereas the the used by 318,000 projects. It lists one, two, three, four, five. It lists like six, and it says plus, as in there's more. And it says plus three hundred seventeen thousand nine hundred forty-six. Like <laughs> oh, that's not really, not really representative. But okay, I understand the UI. But anyway, yeah, it's used by a lot of people. Well, right, it's used by quick. used by more projects than their stars. So some people are using it and don't like it. Apparently, maybe. Yeah, come on, start this up, people. <laughs> I, the only reason you don't see a star from me is I'm not logged in. All right, and finally, I wrote a new essay called "Use Custom Search Engines Way More." This is not. DuckDuckGo versus Google versus Bing, but rather if you use a proper browser like Vivaldi or Firefox or even Chrome, although anyway, uh, you can go and set custom search engines for all sorts of cool stuff. Like one I set was PyPI, Brian. So if I go to my my address bar, I don't know if I've done it on my my streaming one here. Let me see. Now only my proper one. This is like a, a separate user account over here, but I could go and just type PyPI space PyTest and it will search using PyPI.org's search results directly for PyTest or whatever it is you type there. I didn't know or, you could do this. Isn't this awesome? So if you want to search Unsplash for uh, stock Pictures. photos, just type yeah. U space and you type the thing or SO space, you directly search on Stack Overflow. So instead of searching for it, oh, I was looking in, looking for Stack Overflow. So you scroll through till you find the result and you go, you know, just like, boom, just like a super short, 
or GH for GitHub. Just search only repositories, not users, or whatever you want to type in. Incredibly easy. So that's my my essay, my quick little. So that's a, that's not built in already. You have to well, it's supported, but you have to like configure it on your browser. You have or? to type. Yeah, you have to type. Basically, um, you go to Vivaldi search. And then you find, just go enter a new search engine, or there's ways to do it in Firefox. There's ways to do it in Chrome. They're all different. Okay. But then you just figure out, if you just search a site, like if you search Stack Overflow, you'll see it's stackoverflow.com slash search question mark Q equals some string. And so you just put percent S there and say that's the search engine. Okay. I think yeah. I'll do a PB for Python Bytes. Um, oh, you know what? I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling like we could totally do this. I mean, the URL's right up there. Yeah. Q equals that. Yeah, why not? Yeah, sure. skip one step. Beautiful. Anyway, that's my, my set of extras. Very cool. Thanks. Um, well, how about funny stuff? This one's quick and short. Okay. Uh, it's a picture, but you don't need to know anything about the picture. It's just a lawyer arguing a case. Hey, Brian says, your honor, my client didn't know they were pushing to the main branch. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> my, didn't know I pushed to the main branch. This is my defense. I'm sorry I took down the website during Black Friday. I thought it was my my fork. Uh, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, how often have you like, well, I guess you don't do, do this too much, but um, <laughs> it's three-day weekend. I want to make sure that I have my stuff pushed to uh, mm -hmm. to the central repo. So push, but... you work at home, right? You want to like yeah. sync it back up or whatever. Yeah, but, uh, but make sure you're on a branch. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. So, okay. We were talking about uh, junior versus senior a little bit on AI stuff. So I wanted to uh, share a little picture also of uh this was i saw this on um, mastodon um uh, junior <laughs> versus senior developer junior uh it's a timeline thing uh so the junior developer working on project encompasses the entire time senior developer finding the motivation to start takes up like 90 percent, 80 percent of the time and then actually doing it at the end uh and the total time is equal <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, that's um, amazing. I would have altered it to make the senior like the total time is like a little bit less. It's just, um, yeah. Yeah. And the junior needs a little bit of finding the motivation, but just a tiny bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's still, it's still a good one. Anyway. Cool. Well, um, thanks again for, oops, uh, such a great uh, episode. Good to talk to you this week. It's good to have everybody in the, the showing up for the live show. Thank you very much. If you want to, What's that link again? If you if people want to go watch the live show, um, they can pythonbytes.fm slash live. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, plus, if you just go to pythonbytes.fm, it's right at the top uh, there. Yeah. So thanks a we lot. We make it easy. We make it easy for people. <laughs> yeah. All right. See you next week. Bye all.